People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Matt Dawson is the founder and CEO of a genomics-based personalized medicine company called Wild Health. They specialize on providing holistic treatment based on individuals' DNA and other biometrics to help them achieve optimal health and performance. Matt has spoken at our conference at Georgetown University and most recently at our wellness experience in Florida. Matt and his team are doing all they can to help with the current pandemic. Please welcome Matt Dawson to the podcast. Well, thank you for the lovely introduction. So just tell us, what are you all working at at the Kentucky Castle? Well, we're shut down to the public like other businesses are. We are still working, though. So the focus right now at the Castle is on frontline providers. So someone reached out to me who listens to our Wild Health podcast and who we know and asked how they could help. They're not a medical provider, but they have resources and means. So they asked how they could help. And I said the natural resource in our country that I think we really need to support as a group and really help right now are the frontline providers, so firefighters, police, paramedics, ER nurses and techs, people in the ICU. So this gentleman, it's Papa John, actually he's okay with me saying it because he wants to be a good example for other. He paid for and we're cooking several hundred meals a day and delivering to local fire stations and police stations and ERs as well. So when you think about these people, these firefighters and paramedics, it's a terrifying job right now. In New York City, they've, at last count, was 10 police officers who have died from COVID-19. Right now, these paramedics are rushing to a scene to see someone, and they have no idea what they're going to get, if they're going to catch SARS-CoV-2 from this patient or not. And the amount of stress that's on them, I feel like if we as a society could somehow relieve just some stress from them, like if they just don't have to worry about how they're going to feed their family that night or what they're going to eat that day. It's not even just an altruistic thing to do, but it's an investment. Like we need this resource on the front lines and we really need to do everything that we can to support them and help them out in any way possible. So is this nationwide? So what we're doing is we're delivering locally and we're trying to publicize that and challenge others around the nation. Just as an example that we'll use is if someone has money or resources, then team up with someone who, for example, has a food truck. That food truck is out of work right now. So if someone could pay for that food truck to be stationed outside the fire station or the ER to be making food for those frontline providers, that could be really beneficial. If you don't have money, if you don't have a food truck, maybe just call an ER nurse that you know and say, how can I help? That would seem like a little thing, but we're a big nation. We're over 300 million people. If everyone is doing that, we can really get behind these folks and really make a difference. Mm -hmm. And we were saying earlier that just staying in our house is a civic duty too. That's the number one thing that people can do. The ERs and the ICUs are full right now. So every single person that they don't have to take care of, that we don't have to intubate, that we don't have to see, it's less strain on the system. And those that are there are going to do better. Matt, maybe we can kind of go back, and I know you're doing these reports daily and we want to promote your podcast that you're doing, but what was your report today and where do you see things going and where have we been? Maybe do a sort of big picture for us. 
it's such a dynamic situation right now. So what we're trying to do at Wild Health is we have a large network of physicians and PhD infectious disease specialists and others. And so we're collating the information in the literature and then putting out daily reports as to what we see going on. There's emerging literature right now. It's coming out every day. So we're trying to report on that and then kind of try to translate it as well. Um, we have training in translating the evidence. So we try to tell people what it means if there's any change in the situation. So on the one hand, we're reporting just the news, what's going on, but then we're also trying to translate some of the medical information coming out. Where we are right now, we're in very different places all over the world. So there are groups like in China and Italy who have probably been through the worst of it, and they're on the downward part of the curve. They still have a long way to go. And they may have more spikes, but they're moving through it. In the United States, we have places like New York City, Detroit, New Orleans, who are right in the middle of it, going through hell right now. And those are the places that as a nation, we really need to focus on. The U.S., when we talk about what's going on in the U.S., it's kind of a misnomer because the U.S. is such a diverse area that's very different place to place. So one of the benefits we have in the U.S. that I feel like we should really be focusing on is identifying the places like New York and New Orleans and everybody else coming together and supporting those areas. Because what will happen is they will get through it maybe a month. I'm not sure exactly when. They'll be through their peak. They'll have learned a lot of lessons. And then hopefully I think that they will be there for the rest of the country when it comes. Different places will be hit more intensely than others, but I don't think any area will come out completely unscathed. Just the way this virus moves and the r naught and the contagiousness of it, we're all going to be affected. If we can support and send resources to the places as they're going through it in the worst times, I think that'll be a benefit to all of us. Just to understand again, the reason it's hitting its peak at that time is because they weren't tested. I mean, why is the peak then and why do we know it's going to go down? So density matters. People talk about the term r naught. That is how infective this is. So with an r naught of three, that means for every person infected, they're probably going to infect three people. That number, that r naught, is a very dynamic number, though. If you go in a rural area where people are spread out, the r naught is much lower. If you go in a dense area like New York City where everyone's crammed together, the r naught is much higher. So that's why the dense places are filling it right now. The rural places have a little bit of an advantage being spread out, but at the same time, they're at bigger risk because there are more comorbidities. The health outcomes tend to be lower, and there are less resources in the community when it comes to hospitals. So a lot of people in rural areas think that they may be unaffected, but I'm anxious to see what happens and kind of worry those places may be even worse off in the end per capita than some of the more dense areas. People can be carriers without any symptoms. Is that unique to the coronavirus or is that true of other viruses as well? It's true of other viruses, but more so it seems with the coronavirus. Most viruses, usually you have a fever and you have your symptomatic before you're spreading it. It's part of what makes the coronavirus the perfect storm. People can be infected. They can be shedding the virus or spreading it, but they don't have symptoms. While it is true for some other illnesses, it's much more true for the coronavirus. That window seems to be when someone, for example, you breathe in some virus, it starts replicating. There's what's called the incubation period before you get symptoms, which is usually around four to five days. At day two or three before you actually have symptoms, that's when maybe there'll be enough virus in your nasal passageways, for example, or in your lungs for you to cough or to expel, and you can be contagious even though you don't have symptoms yet. 
Is that the same timeline for people who never show symptoms? So the people who never show symptoms, that curve, I'm not sure exactly how long they are contagious, but it would probably, in theory, be a similar timeline. Now, the problem with a lot of things that I'm telling you, we have some good data, like on that incubation period and other things. For other things, we just don't. We know people have tested positive without symptoms, and so in theory, they could be shedding. I don't think we have a great picture of how long the shedding lasts if you don't get symptoms. Like, are you contagious for a week or two days or 10 days? I don't think we really know the answer to that question. Will we all get it, Matt? Or is it going to be, we won't get it because we get the vaccine? Or how is it going to be that once everything settles, where does it go? I hope we don't all get it. That would be devastating. With a mortality rate of one to one and a half percent, that would be 30 million people in the U.S. If we didn't get a vaccine, that may be the natural course. So the goal is to decrease the spread like we're doing, to flatten the curve and simply to buy us time. Even without a vaccine, we all wouldn't get it. What would happen is herd immunity. So the options for getting through this are 60 to 70 percent of the population gets it. And then enough people are immune that gatherings become less risky, there's less spread, and there's what's called herd immunity. At what percentage of infectivity we actually reach that herd immunity depends on what model you believe. But we wouldn't all get it. We would just have enough people get it that so many people have immunity. That would be a devastating conclusion because even if, let's say, 50% of the population got it, if 150 million people in the U.S. get it and it's got even a 1% mortality rate, which seems to be a little lower than we think, that's 15 million people that will die from this. And what people aren't talking about is not just the mortality, but the morbidity. So if you do recover, there seems to be long-lasting effects for maybe 10 to 15% of people, either acute lung injury or cardiomyopathy or other problems. We don't know that exact number, but that's going to be a massive toll on people the economy, the healthcare system taking care of them. So our real hope is the vaccine. The problem is that's a ways off. The most aggressive estimates are probably 12 months, but probably more realistic timeline is probably closer to 18 months. So I think we're in for kind of a long haul here. I don't think it will be as intense as it is right now with the stay-at-homes, but it's going to be a staged opening back up, they want to be very careful and have to have adequate testing and the ability to isolate and trace and do a lot more things than we have the capability to do now before we can open back up. What are the chances you could get the virus from like opening your Amazon package and all of that? The high risk is another person. That's by far the riskiest thing. That's why we're staying away from each other. In theory, you could. So just to give you the data we know, and then we'll extrapolate a little bit and guess a little bit. We do know that the virus particles can live on plastic, for example, for up to three days, on cardboard for about eight hours. So your cardboard Amazon box that comes. If your delivery man or woman had it and coughed on the box, for example, and got particles, they hand it to you. There are particles there that you could pick it up from. Now, that's eight hours. So there are several strategies that people take. One, you could simply wipe it down with an alcohol wipe. Alcohol wipes, over 70% alcohol content will kill the virus. You also, some people are doing what they're quarantining their packages. So the mail guy leaves them out there and you just leave it for a day. You pick it up the next day because that's much longer than eight hours. 
I've also heard of some people putting it in the oven to 150 degrees or things like that. I think the quarantining is probably a better idea. I, I get uh, some boxes of dark chocolate. Uh, so you wouldn't want to pick it up and put those in there. Not a good idea. Can you talk about the state of the health of us now as a nation and how this might be different if we were healthier? People were talking about China having high mortality rates because they smoke a lot. And while that's true, the problem we have in the U.S. that's super prevalent is obesity. And we think that confers a big risk as well. To give you some numbers to that, in Colorado, if you look at the deaths from COVID-19, only about 20% of the deaths have been under 70 years old. So it is kind of a disease of older people. However, in Georgia, the deaths from COVID-19 under 70 years old are 49%, almost half of the deaths are in under 70 year olds. And we believe that that is because of the disparity in health there. So there's more obesity, there's more diabetes, more hypertension. We as a nation, I think, are at pretty high risk because of our current health status. And what would you suggest people start doing now beyond, of course, washing our hands? Yeah, we know that you do much better with this virus if you're in good physical condition and have optimized health. There's never a bad time, but there's also never been a better time to optimize your health. We have time right now. We're working from home. We're quarantined, focusing on your health. If you was one lever to pull, one big thing to do, it would be optimizing your sleep. Sleep is critically important. It's difficult when there's a global pandemic going on to sleep well, but that is probably the one thing that if people focus on the most, that's the biggest bang for their buck because it affects so many other things. It affects the body composition, the obesity, it lowers blood pressure. We know hypertension is a risk factor. It has so many other benefits. Eating whole foods, eating a healthy diet, doing the things that we know we should anyway, focusing on those and getting good sleep, I think are the best things that people could do. We've heard a little bit about melatonin because obviously that helps with sleep, but is that something that's working against the COVID? Melatonin is an interesting supplement. There are very low risks to taking melatonin, and there are some preliminary data that it may be effective in decreasing inflammation and helping with COVID-19. So just a couple weeks ago, there was a study published that came out of China, and they looked at decreased inflammation, giving melatonin to COVID-19 patients. It was a really big dose, much bigger than we'd normally take it. It was like 25 milligrams. I mean, to get an effect in a study, a lot of times you have to use a bigger dose. Personally, for myself, I've started taking melatonin at night, seeing that preliminary data, and knowing that just optimizing my sleep is important right now. So it's not something I normally take, but I've started taking melatonin. How much are you taking or how much do you recommend? I used to recommend kind of what I would consider physiologic doses, which were much lower than most people take. So less than a milligram, but I've been taking six milligrams. The safety profile, how big the window is for safety is really big. It's really hard to overdose on melatonin. So you can take larger doses. So the best way to figure out for yourself is simply to take enough that works without causing you to be groggy the next morning. What other supplements do you recommend? I know there's a lot of talk about vitamin D3. And just to be super clear, there's no FDA approved treatments. Well, sorry, the hydroxychloroquine has emergency FDA approval, but but none of the supplements I'm going to talk about are FDA approved. But what I'm doing for myself, just from collating the information, vitamin D, there is good evidence that having optimized vitamin D levels decreases cold and flu symptoms. There is a theoretical risk because vitamin D does tend to upregulate ACE2 receptors, and that's the receptor the virus binds on. So I still think the benefit of having optimized vitamin D levels outweighs this theoretical risk, but I should mention that at least. 
The other supplements that I'm very interested in right now would be quercetin. Quercetin is a flavonoid that there's some interesting data on quercetin for viruses like Ebola, some other Italian data. There's a group in Montreal doing a study with quercetin and COVID-19 right now that looks very promising. So I'm taking quercetin right now and then zinc. Zinc is a supplement that a lot of people take anyway. Zinc actually has some antiviral, anti-replication properties, so it decreases the virus from replicating. For it to truly work, it has to get into the cell. I think you probably need higher levels of zinc in your serum, or you need a zinc transporter taken with it as well, which is potentially one of the mechanisms by which the hydroxychloroquine works. It's a zinc ionophore transporter. So zinc, quercetin, vitamin D, the ones that people think about boosting immunity like vitamin C, probably helpful. There's a trial going on in China right now with IV vitamin C, so that may show some benefit. And the other things that people take like echinacea, astragalus, those herbs that tend to boost immunity are some that we could think about right now. How much would you recommend for the vitamin D3 and the quercetin and the zinc? These are guesses. There's no studies in this. So the, the, the vitamin D3 and K2, I take 5,000. I use a day. The quercetin, I think the dosage is around 500 milligrams is what I take right now. The zinc, most of the time we recommend kind of 15 to 30. I'm taking 60 milligrams right now. And of course, hydration. You talked a lot about that in the summit, having people make sure they're drinking enough water during this time. Yeah, it's always important. And if you do get a flu-like illness, dehydration is always an issue. So just maintaining your hydration right now, I think is smart. And what kind of diet would you recommend? Normally, my answer to that would be it's completely personalized because we practice genomics-based precision medicine, so it depends on your genetics. A more generic answer that could be applied to everyone would just simply be a whole foods diet. I mean, in the simple answer, I mean, Michael Pollan, I think, said it best over a decade ago in his book, eat foods, mostly plants, not too much. So what he meant by that, I needed to define it when he said, eat foods. If your great-great-grandmother wouldn't recognize it as a food, then don't eat it. Another good rule of thumb is if you pick up something at the store and it's got an ingredient that you can't pronounce or don't know what it is, then don't eat it. Eat actual foods that your great-great-grandmother would recognize. Which brings up the point about the foods and going to the grocery store and all that. Do we have to worry about like our produce or anything? Like what's coming out on that? Yeah, I would wash the produce for sure. I mean, just soap and water is the easiest way for things that have skin, like oranges, bananas, and all that. There are vegetable washes. There's some specific vegetable wash detergents, but I would definitely do that right now. But there's no real studies that are coming out that the virus is contagious that way. No, not necessarily. It's not necessarily a foodborne illness. About half the people are presenting with GI symptoms. It's kind of inconclusive. Whether you can get it from eating it or not, having it on the fruit and you touching it and then touching your face is a potential way of transmission. And you know, you're hearing a lot about intermittent fasting during this time. Do you have any thoughts on that or do you think that goes along with take better care of yourself? Yeah, normally I'm a really big fan of intermittent fasting. I just see remarkable improvements in insulin sensitivity. It's a great intervention. However, it is a slight stressor. And our body, we respond well to what's called hormetic stresses like exercise, intermittent fasting, things like this. But the way that I look at this, so let's take exercise, for example, because it'll apply the same. Exercise, when you do high intensity training or long training, you're getting a transient decrease in your immune system for an increase later. 
But that stressor, if you're training, for example, for a marathon, you're going to build, build, build. And in the last few weeks, you taper to give your body kind of that energy and make sure you're optimized and fueled up well. I'm looking at this as our race. So I did Ironmans in the past, and I'd have a few weeks where I really kind of relaxed and tapered and took it easy going into it. And I look at this pandemic as our competition. So it's not a time to really be building and trying to gain a lot of fitness with intense work. And so I would look at the same for feeding. If you're going into a race, a long race, you're not doing fasting prior to the race. That may be a useful construct months earlier when you're trying to lose weight or get into shape. But right now, we need to probably not stress our bodies a lot. Now, I don't want people to use that as an excuse to overeat or not exercise because it's the amount that matters. Exercise has been shown to boost immunity to a certain extent. If you overdo it, it pushes immunity down. What we're recommending to our patients right now and to others is zone two training. To define that a little better, when you're working out, if you're a little bit uncomfortable having a conversation, so you could have a conversation, but you're just uncomfortable and it's a little much, that's zone two. And doing that up to 60 minutes probably has a boost on immunity if you go over 60 minutes, even with the zone two, it may depress your immunity. So zone two, 20 to 60 minutes is a good target right now for exercise. Do you think of the virus ever in terms of mental health? It's having a massive impact already, Doro. It's, so when we look in China, there was a really great study showing really high rates of depression, insomnia, PTSD, and the workers on the front lines. It's also happening to just people in general at the epicenter. I think that's going to be the next wave we deal with after the pandemic is the mental health repercussions. Um, that's why I'm so excited about you all's work with co-mindfulness. You are already working on the solution to that. We're social beings. Mm -hmm. We're not meant to be isolated like this. So when you combine the isolation with the fear, with actual illness, it's a pretty bad combination. So I know you don't know the answer to this, and probably everyone's asking you, so how long? How long do you think this is going to go on? <laughs> no, I can tell you exactly how long. I know the date. No, I'm just kidding. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we really think you would not. Like, we're like, really? Okay. Matt will know. Matt will know. <laughs> is it true that the virus is going to calm down in the summer months and then maybe spike back up in the fall? I think there's a whole range of possibilities that completely depend on how we act. If we do what we're doing now, if we do a good job and we have good social distancing, there probably will be a, and, and again, just to clarify, New York City versus Chicago versus Omaha, Nebraska are going to be completely different. But in general terms, they're probably in most of the U.S. or the, for the large part of the population, there'll be a spike in the next 30 days or so, maybe up to six weeks, but probably three to six weeks, there'll be a spike if we look, just look at total numbers. And then hopefully there will be a decline. The risk and what I'm worried about is the opening back up because we've already seen it in other countries. This is a nice thing about this is we can look into the future because we've already had the future in other places. They have opened up in Japan, Singapore, China have all had this issue in certain places where they've opened back up and there's another spike. Until we have a vaccine like we talked about, the risk is that there's going to be another big spike in the fall or in the winter or whenever we loosen back up and people just can't take being inside anymore. So hopefully we will all be able to develop these protocols together. We increase our testing capacity. We increase our ability to track and trace contacts. And then we'll have an organized opening back up that allows us to function somewhat normally, not normally, but closer to normal. I was just talking to someone this morning about this. They asked me when we're going to get back to normal. 
And I was just telling them how we're going to be on lockdown. We're going to have to come out of it very slowly with testing and with protocols. And then once we get to a vaccine, that's when in theory, we could go back to normal, but I really think just the psychological scars and what we've experienced, I don't think we're ever going to be back to normal. Once we have a vaccine, we'll be back to the place where we were, but just the mentality will be very different. What do you think in our world will be changed forever after this? I don't know if people will shake hands anymore. I think that's something that's always going to change. It breaks my heart to think that we will hug less. Yeah, I hate to even say it out loud. I think there are a lot of little things like that. I think gatherings, I think when you think about concerts and football stadiums and arenas, I don't know how long before attendance of those things. There's such a drive for us to get together and have communal experiences like that. So I'm really interested to see if the drive to do that is going to overpower the fear of what we've been through. Just like 9-11 changed air travel, I think this is going to change the world just 10 times more. Will the vaccine be like a liquid vaccine or what kind of vaccine do you think it'll be? Flu vaccines we have now, you can give them in a shot, you can give them in a nasal spray. There's a few different delivery mechanisms, so I assume it'll be similar to just your regular flu vaccine and delivery. And do you think it'll be just like the flu vaccine where you go up and you can kind of get it anywhere? I think it'll get out to us faster than any vaccine has ever gotten out. out to <laughs> Problem is we're not waiting around for the flu vaccine normally, so we don't just wait every day. What's going on? Where is it? The speed with which they're developing is incredible. How many trials is going on? It is still going to feel really slow to us. But once we have a good vaccine, then I think what's going to happen is every manufacturer around the world who can produce it will produce it and we'll have mass quantities. What do you feel optimistic about? It has been truly amazing, Dor, to watch all of humanity focused on one problem, like the amount of cooperation and sharing knowledge. Science, I think, will never be the same, but in a good way. Just the speed with which things are being published, how different researchers and universities are coming together and collaborating. It's a devastating thing for us, but I also think it's going to really push humanity forward when it comes to global cooperation. It's also great, too, just to see certain people in society who weren't necessarily valued. I mean, you think about the reality stars and how much attention they got compared to Dr. Anthony Fauci three months ago. And now how often Dr. Anthony Fauci is on TV compared to the reality stars. So it's kind of a little bit of a nice realignment of priorities in society with what's important. What's your thought on the news? Sorry, I was just thinking about a cool reality show with Dr. Fauci. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) That would be fun. Um, You ask about the news. What's your thoughts on that? It's difficult because on the one hand, you want people to stay informed, but on the other time, it kind of becomes an addiction and almost a tick that we have constantly checking the numbers and what's going on. Obviously, watching all day is is a bad thing. Like opening up your phone and reading the news before you go to sleep, I think is a bad thing. So I think the way to think about it is there's not something that's going to affect your decision making right now. It probably is not worth watching the news. You're probably better off spent going for a walk if you have a safe place to go for a walk or meditating or doing something like that. Maybe setting up some boundaries. Like I'm going to get my news from this source 30 minutes a day and the rest of your day planning around it. I think if you don't set those boundaries around watching the news, you can easily get sucked in and it can just consume your whole day without any actual positive effect. What didn't we ask you, Matt, that we should talk about? 
We're even thinking about Gasparilla. Yeah. Uh, how to do something like that safely. That's what gets me excited to start thinking about the future and how to do something like that. So for example, people who want to come, if you did antibody testing before, you could right off the bat identify a certain percentage which were immune. They're your safe attendees. They get a green card or something. Then you go to the hotel and you say, okay, look, you normally have 200 staff. You're not open. We really only need 20 staff for an event. So let's test all 200 for antibodies and figure out who's immune. That's your safe staff. People who aren't immune come in, you test them, they're negative. You know there's a two-day window where they may test negative and then they become positive later. So two-day quarantine, no one's together. Then one more test. And then you kind of have a safe environment. Where everyone can relax, they can hug each other and shake hands or do whatever, knowing that everybody is safe. And what you're saying is that then we begin to believe we can do that again. And I'm starting to try to put those protocols together because I feel like they need a little bit of stress testing. And that's why I kind of mentioned them here too, is just I want to get people's minds kind of started on that so that we can be ready to do that in a robust way as, as soon as it's socially acceptable and the, our leaders say we can do it. That's great. That's really good. Thank you. So nice to take the time to be with us again. It's always great to, to see you all again. Hopefully it'll be in person soon. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.